Jeremiah chapter 30. I'm calling this the trials and triumphs in the days ahead. The trials and triumphs in the days ahead. In Jeremiah chapter 30, we come, like I said, to a new division. It says the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I've spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now, these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. But thus says the Lord, we've heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turned pale? Alas. For that day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Therefore, do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord. Nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the book of Jeremiah, or you've just joined us, or even if you've been with us for a very long time, Let's find ourselves in the chronology for just a moment. I'm going to suggest to you that Nebuchadnezzar and the armies of Babylon have surrounded Jerusalem and they've built a siege ramp. They're either at the very moment that Jeremiah is writing these words, getting ready to storm the walls of Jerusalem or shortly thereafter. Now, remember, Jeremiah was born in a place called Anathoth in chapter one, verse one. That's about three miles northeast of Jerusalem. His father was Hilkiah, a priest. His ministry began in about 626 B.C. and it lasted to 586 B.C. It encompasses seven kings of Judah. His public ministry is during the reign of five kings. 
Now, you may not be a chronology person. You may not be a date person. You may have had a hard time in school remembering that 1776 was the year that they signed the Declaration of Independence. You may have struggled with the idea that 1787 was the time when they signed the Constitution. You may not be good with dates. But let me tell you why the chronology is important. The chronology is important because there is a timeline that is going to begin to unfold. And so I'm going to give you several dates. Like I said, his ministry begins in 626 B.C. and goes to 586. For those of you who are unfamiliar of B.C. and A.D., remember at the birth of Jesus, you start counting forward. And unfortunately, since he was born between 4 and 7 B.C. and the chronology got it all wrong right from the start. When we say that this is the year 2012, it isn't exactly 2012, 12 years since the birth of Christ. But remember, at ground zero, and you start counting backwards, one, two, three, four, five, you can imagine if it's 700 years before the birth of Christ, you start going backwards. 700, 600, 500, 400, 300, 200. So the way you remember, it's like counting backwards from 10. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And then you count forward. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. So... The last five kings were Josiah from 640 to 609, Jehoiaz from 609 B.C., Jehoiakim 608 to 598, Jehoiachin 598 to 597, Zedekiah 597 to 586. Some of Jeremiah's contemporaries would have included the prophet Zephaniah and Habakkuk and Ezekiel, who's probably in Babylon at this point, maybe even Obadiah. In the Expositor's Bible Commentary, there's a brief outline of the key events. 626 B.C., that's the call of Jeremiah. 612 B.C., this is the fall of Nineveh, which was the Assyrian capital in the north. 609 B.C., which is very important, is the death of King Josiah at the Battle of Megiddo. In 605 B.C., this is when the Assyrian Empire collapses under the weight of its own corruption. In 605 B.C., the first siege of Jerusalem begins by Nebuchadnezzar. In 605 in, in 597 B.C., the second siege of Jerusalem begins. In 588 to 586 B.C., the final siege takes place. So, for those of you who get confused, there's a series of three sieges that take place, and this is the final siege. Why is all of this important to you? Because Jeremiah is living in a time of upheaval. It is social, political, economic, socially, morally. The empires are crumbling and rising. Judah and Jerusalem's sin and rebellion has permeated every aspect of the culture. Just right when you thought that it couldn't get any worse, it's as bad as it can possibly be. Judah slipped into complete corruption and apostasy. During the evil reign of King Manasseh. And then it climbed out of the sewer of that terrible reign and the social reforms of Josiah kicked in. But they were external. They were only on the outward. Josiah saved his country from immediate 
annihilation and just bought just a little more time for the country. But the people failed to repent and return to the Lord. In other words, there were external political, social and cultural changes. He made it. He outlawed idolatry. He outlawed um, some of these things. He reinstituted the temple worship. But guess what? If you had a law that said everybody has to go to church and everybody has to read their Bible. And let's just say for purposes of discussion, everybody did go to church and everybody did read their Bible. Does that mean their heart would be different? You can make it. You can require your children to go to church and you can require them to read the Bible. But you can't make them in their heart love the Lord and love God's word. And that's exactly what was happening. The people failed to repent. They failed to return to the Lord in their heart. And you can initiate changes in your life. You can initiate changes in what you watch and even what you say. But there might be something inside of you that still clings to and longs for your past. The scriptures describe Judah and Jerusalem as apostate, as backslidden. These are the words the scriptures use. Utterly depraved, immoral, excelling in, wise in doing evil. The prophet Jeremiah exposes and denounces the horrific sins of idolatry, insincere worship, injustice, sexual immorality, including temple prostitution, and even the wicked, evil, sick, disgusting practice of child sacrifice, where they would burn their children on the arms of Molech. Right when you thought that it couldn't be any more wicked, it couldn't be any worse, it gets worse. And the prophet Jeremiah warned them for 40 years that that there was going to be judgment. And the judgment was going to be so harsh as to suggest that the practices weren't random or committed by only a few. In other words, this was a terrible sense of evil that permeated the entire society. And by the way, in in a civilized society... There are judicial systems where people can be held accountable for their behavior. You know, there are some countries in our world today that the government has collapsed and the judicial system has collapsed. I'm thinking of Somalia in particular, where we've made conscientious effort to keep tens of thousands of people from starving to death. And even when people are caught, there's no system of justice to try them and convict them. It is a country without a judicial system. And I want you to think about it. If countries, if human beings hold men accountable for the things that they do, doesn't it make sense to you that a moral God, a righteous God, a just God is going to take into account everything that's happening? In his universe. And so we come to a place in the book of Jeremiah where the next several chapters focus on comfort and hope for God's people. There's a series of messages and events before the fall of Jerusalem 
in chapters 34 through 39, messages and events after the fall of Jerusalem in chapters 40 through 45. So the theme shifts now from judgment to comfort and hope. And aren't you glad? So Jeremiah is instructed to write messages in a book. And right from the start, you might ask the question, why? Why does God instruct Jeremiah to write the messages in a book? And I'm going to suggest to you that God wanted a permanent record for future generations. God desired a permanent record for future generations because remember, remember, remember what's happening. The gates are being stormed. The city is about to collapse. So why does the theme shift from judgment to hope and reassurance? Because I need to tell you something. As bleak, as black, as dark, as all of the wickedness and all of the judgment, these people need hope. They're in a hopeless, hopeless, desperate situation. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where people were having to play out the consequences of their horrible sin, their wickedness, their rebellion. And even you felt sorry for them. You go, wow, the way of the transgressor is hard. This is a difficult thing that I'm witnessing. Because the people are in a hopeless, desperate situation, they need hope and, and, and assurance. The entire country is getting ready to collapse under the weight of the Babylonian war machine. Jerusalem, and I want you to get this now, Jerusalem has been under siege for 18 months. The supplies are gone. The food is gone. The water is polluted. They are in the final months of this great siege. And the predicted collapse of Jerusalem is certain and imminent. Thousands of people are crammed into the interior walls of Jerusalem. Thousands, tens of thousands perhaps are hungry as the last food supplies have disappeared. And when... when The chaos is getting ready to collapse. There is looting and there is rioting and there is threatening and there is hoarding of anything that used to be valuable. The Babylonian army is just outside the gates. You've watched them build the ramp for the last six months and they're getting ready to breach the wall. It would be like if you were in Texas. Surrounded by 10,000 Mexican soldiers. And there you are with Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie. And you know this isn't going to end good. You've done everything that you can to survive. Utter hopelessness is gripping their hearts. We already know that the judgment in part is due to their persistent, willful, unrepentant sin. We know the people have rejected God and they've rejected God's word. They turn to idolatry. They involve themselves in gross immorality. God appoints Babylon to discipline them. And now the Lord breathes words of hope and a future restoration and hope of a coming king. A Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the hope of a new covenant that will transform and redeem their filthy, dirty, sinful hearts. Another hope, an unspeakable hope will come before we come to the end of the book. 
We sang about it tonight. It isn't just salvation for the Jews, but salvation for the Gentiles. And so, in verse 1, all that to say this, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I've spoken to you. There's a permanent record of the promises that he made. You know what's really interesting about this permanent record? God, in a very real sense, is holding himself accountable to you. Haven't you ever asked the question? The Bible has a lot of promises. I wonder if they're true. And God is going to make some remarkable promises that we're going to see. By the way, we have access to Jeremiah's promises. But we also have access to his contemporaries. Do you remember everybody who I already mentioned? Zephaniah, Habakkuk, all of these people. All of the people that hung out with Jeremiah and were speaking the words of the Lord. But you have access to all of the prophets. From Moses to Joshua. You have prophets of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel. You can walk through your Bible. You can go to the New Testament and you can read Matthew, Mark and Luke and John. You can read all of the promises that are available because there's a permanent record. We have access to the promises of God. And so look what it says in verse 3. It says, For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. When it says the days are coming, it's repeated in Amos chapter 5, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. And you have to understand the absolute ridiculousness of this statement. Because guess what? In the ancient world, when people were taken away captive, they hardly ever came back. By the way, when have you seen... When was the last Akkadian, Assyrian person that you run across? Olmec, Toltec. There's people groups that arise and disappear. But God makes a promise. I will bring back from captivity. The word is interesting in the original language. It can be translated Restore the fortunes. I will bring back from captivity. Shabti, Shebuit. The idea is that during the exile, the expression came to mean restore the fortunes or make good. I'm almost certain that it means to physically restore the captives to their homeland. And that's exactly what's going to happen. The children of Israel who are in Babylon are going to thrive and grow. They're going to prosper and they're going to increase and they're going to come back. And you can read about it in Ezra, Nehemiah. They're going to come back and it says Israel and Judah. And here Israel means the northern kingdom. And it says... They're coming back. Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall possess it. The idea being that the purpose of discipline, the purpose of chastisement, 
the purpose of discipline and chastisement, and this becomes a key important principle for you, is redemption and restoration. You know, the Bible understands you and me. The Bible says people don't like discipline and punishment, do they? Did you like it when you were a kid growing up? Remember when your dad would say, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. And you knew he was not telling the truth. It's going to hurt you a lot more. But here's, here's the point. The discipline and the punishment was to affect redemption and restoration. You know, this is one of the most important things that I can say to you, even though most of you won't believe me. God will sometimes expose our sins, not for the purpose of humiliating us, but for the purpose of washing us and cleansing us and giving us an opportunity to heal. In medicine, it's a pretty typical practice. When a wound is filthy, you have to cleanse it in order to initiate healing. And at this point, as the gates are being sieged, as they're looking discipline and chastisement in the face, redemption and restoration look like the furthest thing away. Now, remember, the prophecy is in the future. And I'm going to suggest to you that the prophecy of the return isn't simply restricted to Babylon. Although it has an immediate application, will there be a group of captives who will return from Babylon? The answer is yes. But in a sense, it's peering into the future because there's going to be another diaspora, another dispersion. During the time of Rome, the children of Israel are going to be spread out throughout the Mediterranean. And even to this day, there are more Jews living outside of Israel than inside of Israel. Does it apply to a future return after the Roman destruction? I think so. I believe that what's happening in the verse is we're given a peek into a future. In other words, there's an immediate future, the Babylonian captivity. There's an even further future concerning the Roman destruction. And I'm going to suggest to you that there's even a further future. After 1948. Does God have unfinished business with the Jew? I think that the answer is yes. We're also given a type and a picture of freedom from captivity. In other words, there is a big picture for Christians here. Remember in the Bible that Babylon will often represent the world in which we live. The world and the world system. Often Babylon becomes a euphemism, a metaphor for people living in the world. And the Bible pictures sinners as captive in a world. And they need to be freed from this captivity. And how are they freed? They're freed by the power of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Freed from the power of sin. Freed from the penalty of sin. And one day freed from the, from, in a permanent sense of the presence of sin. We are all in bondage. There is a sense in which each and every person is held captive by sin. 
You want to do something different. You want to be somebody different. You want your mind to be different and you want your speech to be different and you want your habits to be different and you find yourself going back over and over again to the bad thinking patterns and the bad speaking patterns and the bad living patterns and you repent and return and repent and return and repent and return and there's just this sense, will I ever be freed from this captivity of sin? But Jesus comes to deliver us from the power of sin. And Jesus comes to deliver us from the penalty of sin. And Jesus comes to deliver us from the presence of sin. And Jesus comes to deliver us from the power of death. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. Because when Jeremiah is speaking, there is failure and there is famine and there is bondage and possibly being even death right on the doorstep. But it's also true of me and you, huh? Is your life guaranteed to you? For those of us who are honest, death is on our doorstep as well. Death is knocking. The future is coming. And you wonder, will I escape the famine? Or will I escape the captivity? Or what does the future hold for me? And like many people who heard Jeremiah's message, they're going to die in the siege. They're going to die in the siege. The Bible says it's appointed once for a person to die and then the judgment. But you know what else the Bible says? That the worst thing that could possibly happen to you isn't that you die. Because the Bible says that your soul is going to survive death. You're going to survive whatever happens in the future. And one day you will stand before God. And you will be accepted by God. On one basis and one basis only. What did you do with Jesus? What did you do with the promise? I want you to think about this. I will bring them back from their captivity. I will restore their fortunes. You see, the whole life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is so that your life and fortunes could be restored. What does it mean by life and fortunes? Does that mean you get a big house and and you get a great job and you never have to worry and you never have to suffer? That's not what it means at all. It means that the power of sin and the penalty of sin and the power of death and the penalty of death are removed. Jesus Christ has delivered us from the coming judgment and the coming condemnation for those who denied God and disobeyed God. And so even in the midst of this painful circumstance, Jeremiah is pleading with the hearer and saying, you know what? There's hope even now. You know, You might find yourself in a position one day where you have to go to a hospital room and a hospital bed. And everyone around the hospital room and the hospital bed will say there's no hope. And the only hope that's going to come is the hope that you bring into that room as you remind them that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And even if this person dies, yet shall they live. That this tragic moment isn't the most tragic thing that could happen. Dying isn't the worst thing that could happen to a person. Dying apart from Christ, that's the worst thing that can happen. 
And so there's a day that he talks about, a day of reckoning and judgment. Look at verse 4. Now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. The Lord shows Jeremiah a day of reckoning and a day of judgment. And I'm going to suggest to you, it isn't just the day of reckoning or the day of judgment as Babylon is pounding on the on the walls of the city of Jerusalem, that that there is a tribulation coming. And the tribulation, note what it says, it concerns Israel and Judah. It will involve both Israel, and then in this particular instance, it means the ten northern tribes that have already been taken into captivity by Assyria, and the two southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah. In other words, there is a tribulation coming. And you can imagine, people are listening and they're thinking, what could be worse than this? Can you imagine you're the pastor of the church in Hawaii on the day that um, Pearl Harbor, December 7th? And you're talking about a tribulation that's coming and then all of a sudden Japanese bombers come and 3,000 Americans die. Can you imagine you're a pastor in New York, in Manhattan, and the planes fly into the Twin Towers And you're saying, you know, there's a future judgment. And here the buildings are collapsing and people are dying. And you're thinking, what could be worse than this? The Lord shows Jeremiah a day of reckoning, a time of tribulation. And look what it says. The tribulation is described as four things. A time of fear and trembling and terror, not of peace for... This is what it says. For thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. What will this tribulation look like? War, famine, disease, global earthquakes. We're told in the New Testament that there's a time of cataclysm that takes place on the planet. Floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, even celestial events, meteor showers. We're told of this unbelievable unfolding that will take place. And there are four things that are outlined. Number one, a time of fear, a time of terror. This is not a time of peace. And then in verse 6 it says, And ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turned pale? Whatever this time is, it's a time of, of terror, not of peace. It's also described as a time of pain and sorrow and distress and severe distress for all of the people. Jeremiah has this vision and it could be he sees it right around him right at that very moment. Men are grasping their stomach because they're so overcome with fear that they're acting like a woman who's getting ready to give birth to a child. I don't know if you've ever seen a man, a grown man, turn white as a sheep and cry like a girl. That's what Jeremiah is describing. Turns white as a sheep, cries like a girl. Why? It isn't because he's making fun of girls or he's making fun of boys. Here's the point that he's trying to make. Even strong men grip their stomachs in fear and terror when there is Unbelievable pain, unbelievable sorrow, unbelievable problems. I had the privilege of this week of of meeting with a man who is a real life hero. 
he was one of the real life pilots in Mogadishu. Some of you, did any of you ever see the movie Black Hawk Down? Some of you did. In that movie, you'll remember several of our helicopters uh, were shot down in Mogadishu. And my friend tells the story of how he was in his seat when his helicopter was coming down. And there was, it had completely penetrated right to the back of his, of his uh, seat. And, and the person who was with him was dead. And he's trying to keep the helicopter from completely crashing. And it hits with such impact that he momentarily loses consciousness. And then his training kicks in. He regains consciousness and he begins to go through the protocol of what it means to keep the people alive in this particular moment. As a matter of fact, one of the people who was a medic on board, he, he was um, um, an EMT close to being a paramedic. And he began to describe to him what it was like to go through shock. He's going, look, my, my vision's starting to narrow right now. What's going to happen when I go into shock? It's going to be almost impossible to find a vein. So I need to walk you through what's going to happen in the next few moments. And this is exactly what's happening. Even strong men are terrified about what's about to take place and what's causing pain. And look what else it says in verse 7. Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Now think about it. It's a time of terror, not peace. It's a time of pain and sorrow and distress for everyone. And now it appears to be some kind of a day unlike any other day. And it's called the time of Jacob's sorrow. And by the way, in the Bible, usually remember there's two words that is used to describe Israel. Jacob, which often refers to Israel in the flesh or apart from God or just living like normal people in Israel, which is like the promises of God. And this time of tribulation is called the time of Jacob's sorrow and the time of Jacob's trouble. Why? Because the emphasis and the focus seems to be on Jacob and prophecy often has a short future or in other words, often prophecies that are made, there's an immediate fulfillment that's going to be involved, but also there's a future fulfillment that takes place. And let me give you an example. Imagine you're right at the base of the Rockies like we are and you see the foothills, but we are we're in a little valley and you see the foothills and you don't see the peaks beyond the foothills from here, do you? But if you drive further east, you can begin to see the 14ers in the distance towering above the foothills in your perspective right now you can't see the peaks beyond the foothills and when you start to drive just a little bit away you see the future you see the short future and you see the longer future and the prophetic focus is on israel and it says alas for that day is great how great none is like it none Hey, you know what? When the Assyrians took the northern tribes captive, that was pretty bad. The day Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, that was bad. The day that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, that was bad. The Nazi Holocaust, how bad was that? Six million Jews dead. 
Do you understand how long it takes to kill six million Jews? When Hitler began exterminating the Jews, he had to kill a thousand people a day, every day, week after week, month after month, for four years. And here it says it's going to be worse than that. Really? I'm going to suggest to you that there's a future world leader who's going to emerge on the scene and he's going to broker a peace with the Middle East and that broker will seem like a Messiah, but he will in fact be the Antichrist. And the Bible has various names for this particular person. But during this time, this time known as Jacob's trouble, it's also described in the Bible as the time of great tribulation in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It's talked about by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. And in the book of Revelation, in chapter 24, verse 15. It speaks of a time when Jesus tells the Jews to flee for the mountains in Matthew chapter 24, verses 16 through 20. Zechariah describes thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews being massacred. A Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt. A world ruler is going to demand to be worshipped. And he's going to require complete obedience under pain and penalty of death. Right when you thought that the worst has already happened, there's something worse in store. And number four, the day will end. Think about it. Alas, for that day is great. None is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Look again in verse seven. But he shall be saved out of it. Now think about what you just read. It's going to be a time of fear, terror, and not peace. It's going to be a time of pain, sorrow, and distress, severe distress for everyone. Number three, it's going to be a day like no other. And number four, the day will end with the salvation of God's people. Right when you think that it's over... It's going to end in salvation. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, it says that the blindness of Israel will cease. There's going to come a moment when the shackles and the lenses and and the blinders are going to be lifted from the people of Israel and their eyes are going to be open to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And I'm going to suggest to you that the days after the rapture of the church, thousands, thousands and thousands of Jews are going to ask themselves this question. Where did the Christians go? Why aren't they here? And they're going to go back to the record. They're going to read what Moses has to say. And they're going to read what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel have to say. They're going to read the book of Daniel. They're going to search the scriptures. And it's going to become painfully clear to thousands and thousands of Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Jews all over the world are going to turn to the Lord Jesus in what might be one of the largest mass revivals in the history of humanity. And the prophet Daniel envisions the rise and the fall of Gentile empires. He envisions Babylon and he envisions Persia and he envisions Greece and he envisions Rome. And then he envisions a time when Rome is reconstituted. 
And the final chapter of human history begins to unfold. And it's described as a day of salvation and deliverance. Look what it says in verse 8. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them. And guess what? From this time, when Babylon enslaves them, they receive no respite from foreign domination. The Babylonians will enslave them. The Persians will enslave them. The Greeks will enslave them until under Antiochus Epiphanes it will become unbearable. And during the Maccabean revolt, they'll experience a momentary sense of independence and freedom, which will last a short time. And then the Roman subjugation will come in. And once again, they will be subject to Rome. But the Bible says that there's going to come a time when the Jews won't be controlled by foreign powers anymore. Do you realize in 1967, in the battle for the city of Jerusalem, for the first time in almost 2,500 years, the city of Jerusalem was no longer under the control of a Gentile power. And the whole city was liberated except for one tiny little piece of acreage, 15 acres, called the Temple Mount, which the Jews decided to cede to the Muslim authority so that World War III wouldn't break out. There is still a tiny piece of land in Jerusalem. Controlled by Gentiles. In verse 9 it says, But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. My question to the text and to you. Has that day come? Two questions really. Did the, did the day come and go and we just forgot about it? Was there ever a time when the children of Israel served the Lord their God and David their king? And I'm going to suggest to you the answer is no. They rejected the Messiah and did not serve David their, their king. Some have suggested that this doesn't mean that David will come back to life, but rather the promise of David's offspring, the Messiah. And it could possibly mean whom I will raise up for them, that David's seed, the real Messiah, I will raise up for them. In other words, the Messiah will come and he will live. And we already know the answer. He will die and he will rise from the dead. But we believe that Jesus Christ, the living Lord of heaven, is coming back to rule and reign on his, on his father's throne. You know, the Lord Jesus is going to come back for many reasons. Not least of which is he said he would come back. But Jesus will come back in effect for the church. And Jesus will come back in effect to judge the unregenerate. Jesus will come back because he has unfinished business with the Jew. Jesus will come back to deal with his enemies. Even though that's a hard thing to talk about. And look what it says. 
the Jews will be restored to their land. That's Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, and also Isaiah chapter 11, verse 60. The Bible seems to indicate that the return of the Jews doesn't immediately take place. A return to the Lord like now. In other words, here's what I'm going to suggest to you. Have the Jews return to the land in part. Will the Jews build a temple and restore worship like it says in Ezekiel chapter 40 through four chapters 48? Yes, they will make an agreement, a covenant with an antichrist for one week, seven years in the middle of the covenant. The covenant is going to be broken and Israel is going to pass through a tremendous tribulation. They're going to be converted as a nation at the coming of Christ, it says in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 13. They're going to become the greatest missionaries ever known. And they're never, ever, 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 ever going to be removed from the land ever again, according to Amos chapter 9, verse 15, and Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 28. But also, look what it says in verse 10. Therefore, do not fear O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have rest and be quiet and no one shall make him afraid. There is a sense in which Israel returned after the Babylonian captivity. But to say that no one would make him afraid just simply didn't happen. By the way. Has that time come? I think this is an unfulfilled prophecy. You know how I know? Because Israel is afraid to this very day. There's a reason why Israel sent a note to the inhabitants of Israel this last week saying, prepare for hard times. Get the gas masks out. And no one shall make them afraid. Do you think it's fearful when Abedinejad says, We're going to bury you. We're going to explode a nuclear weapon and we're going to cause you to cease to exist. Do you think it's fearful when Hezbollah and Hamas in the north and the south conspire to root them out and drive them into the sea? Do you think it's fearful when you are surrounded by Egypt to the south and Jordan and Syria to the east and Lebanon to the north? And there is this constant fearful expectation that this could be the last week of your existence as a nation. This hasn't been fulfilled yet. The Bible envisions a time of peace and rest and tranquility. It's not now. In verse 11, look what it says. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. Now listen to this promise. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. But I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. Do you understand what you're reading? God says, even though I decide to destroy every single nation on the face of the planet Earth, the Jew will survive. I want you to think about what you're reading. God says, don't fear, oh, my servant Jacob, don't be dismayed. I will save you and your seed from the land of captivity. That means he's going to preserve them in Babylon. Jacob shall return, have rest. And then in verse 11, yet I will not make a complete end of you, even if I make an end of all of the nations. 
The Bible teaches that God will make an end of the nations at some point, but the Jew will survive. And no matter what kinds of threatenings that people make, the Jew isn't going to cease to exist. The Lord God promises their survival. I was doing some research when I was preparing this message. Many efforts have been made to rid the world of the Jews, but none have succeeded. Lehman Strauss, who is a faithful Bible teacher in a past generation, said, quote, No man can destroy the Jew. You might as well try to destroy God as to destroy Israel. In spite of all the persecution, Israel is still a nation. He is the indestructible Jew. The king of Egypt couldn't destroy him in Exodus chapter 1. The waters of the Red Sea couldn't drown him in Exodus 14. The gallows of Haman couldn't hang him in Esther chapter 5. The great fish couldn't digest him in Jonah chapter 1. The fiery furnace couldn't consume him in Daniel chapter The lions couldn't devour him in Daniel chapter 6. A prophet couldn't curse him in Numbers 23. The nations couldn't absorb him. The dictators can't annihilate him in Isaiah chapter 14. The Jews have survived the Crusades, the ghettos of Europe, the Holocaust, untold centuries of ridicule, prejudice, persecution from all the nations. They've been scattered and they continue to survive. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the way to make a people group go away. People will begin with discrimination and it will continue with ghettos and then it will culminate in concentration camps. But that seems the path to mass murder. I read this week a poem by Byron. He writes... Tribes of the wandering foot and weary breast, when shall ye fly away and be at rest? The wild dove hazard nest, the fox its cave, mankind their country, Israel but a grave. The world, the world, the world continues to try to exterminate the Jew. John Phillips, who I consider one of the greatest scholars of the 20th century, in his book, Exploring the future, he writes, quote, time after time in their long and troubled history, the Jews have faced the possibility of extermination. 1548, a new pharaoh came to the throne of Egypt, Amenhotep I. It was he who launched history's first attempt to exterminate the Jew. All newborn Hebrew males, he decried, were to be tossed into the Nile. But God stepped in, and instead of extermination, the Jews experienced an exodus. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians culminated a three-year siege on the northern tribes of Israel. They sacked Samaria, depopulated the country, marched their Hebrew captives by the thousands into exile. And oblivion. In 701 BC, the Assyrian monarch Shennacherib, having devastated most of Judah, turned his attention to Jerusalem to uproot what was left of the Jewish people. Again, God intervenes. This time, the armies of the invader were swept away by a divine visitation. Some of you know the story. An angel of the Lord came and killed in a single night the entire army. In 586, it was the 
Babylonians' terms, having led two successful expeditions against Judah and Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar turned to make an end of him. He demolished Jerusalem, burned the temple, slaughtered the Jews wholesale, deported the remainder to Babylon. But there they prospered, outlived the empire that enslaved them, repatriated by order of the Persian emperor Cyrus, as foretold by Isaiah and Jeremiah. In 473 B.C., Haman, the chief minister of the Persian tyrant Xerxes, persuaded his royal master that it would be a benefit to rid the world of the Jews. Again, God intervened, this time through a woman, and the plots of this rabid anti-Semite were foiled. In one of the ironies of history, Haman ends up on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, the Jew that he hated the most. In 169 B.C., a half-mad Syrian tyrant named Antiochus Epiphanes, heir to a segment of the dismembered Grecian Empire, captured Jerusalem, put the Jews to the sword, defiled their temple, temple, issued idolatrous laws no conscientious Jew could think to obey, did his best to replace Jewish culture, Jewish religion with Hellenism, but Antiochus perished and the Jews lived on. In AD 70, after a long and stubborn siege, Jerusalem falls to another imperial power, Rome. During the war, over a million Jews perished by the sword, starvation, crucifixion, internal strife, disease. The Romans glutted the slave markets and arenas with captured Jews, but once more the Jews survived, this time to lay a firmer foundation for Judaism as a viable force in a hostile Gentile world, no matter where or how Jews were forced to live. In 135, the Romans crushed a third Jewish revolt, this time led by Bar Kokhba, a pseudo-Messiah. This infuriated the Emperor Hadrian. He made it a capital offense for anyone to practice Judaism. And Hadrian died and the Jews lived on. In 339, Emperor Constantius II made it illegal for Jews to intermarry with Christians. In 438, the Emperor Theodosius banned Jews from all office in the Roman world. In 531, Justinian resurrected and enforced the prohibition of Theodosius, and in his famous corpus, Juris made it illegal for Jews to appear as witnesses against Christians. In 630, the Byzantine Empire Heraclius connived at connived at a massacre of the Jews who had re-infiltrated Palestine. In 722, Emperor Leo III ordered all Jews to become Christians. In time, the Roman Empire passed away. New powers took stage. The Jews remained. In 1066, the Muslim rulers of Grenada and Spain massacred 4,000 Jews in a single day. In 1096, Pope Urban II proclaimed the First Crusade to rid the Holy Land of the Muslims. The crusade was preached throughout Europe by Peter the Hermit a medieval knights rallied to his cause on their way to fight Pa'anim, the knights founded settlements of Jews and cities through which they passed. Why fight the enemies of the cross in Palestine, they argued, and leave these enemies untouched? They massacred Jews by the thousands, tortured them, burned them, forced them to commit sacrilege, and then marched on their way, feeling that they had done God a favor. In every century, in every generation, Jeremiah was told, write this down in a book so that future generations can read what you've written. And this is the promise that God has made. The world itself will cease to exist before the Jew ceases to exist.
Why? Why? The question has to be why? Because God has unfinished business with the Jew. This is why discrimination is such a wicked thing. Because discrimination invariably will lead to isolation. And isolation will lead to ghettos. And ghettos will lead to concentration camps. And concentration camps will lead to death. Be very careful. My advice? Love what God loves. Hate what God hates. Figure out what God's plan is. And join it. And what is his ultimate plan? That a Messiah comes and that this Messiah creates a mechanism where your sins can be forgiven, where your future can be secure, where heaven becomes not just a possibility, but a certainty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that we've got lots more to go through this chapter. But what an amazing chapter it is. Lord, you keep your promises. And if you kept this promise, then you will certainly keep your promise to the Christian that I will never leave you or forsake you. You will keep your promise to the Christian. Turn to me. Come to me. Cast your cares upon me. Because I care for you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that no matter how deep and no matter how dark and no matter how horrible the present circumstances seem. That, Lord, there's a light and there's a promise that we can embrace. That Jesus is that light. And we can embrace all of his promises. In Jesus' name, amen.